0: Did you know, if people work with nature rather than against it, we can restore the environment while building resilient communities and profitable businesses? I'm Daniel Hartz, and this is the Sustainability Champions Podcast, where we highlight the people, ideas, and innovations that are protecting and healing the planet. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Deborah Brosnan, a scientist specializing in marine resilience and environmental risk reduction. She's known for her ability to rapidly and efficiently bring together governments, businesses, and local communities around smart solutions to climate change. Dr. Brosnan is an adjunct professor of biology at Virginia Tech University and has held positions and fellowships at several institutions, including the University of California, Davis, Stanford University, the Smithsonian Institution, and the University of Washington. Her consulting company, Deborah Brosnan & Associates, works with clients to put together solutions that are financially beneficial for companies and governments while providing the best outcomes for the environment and people. She's also testified in front of the US Congress and advocated at the United Nations to help move the needle on critical environmental debates. This is going to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. Deborah, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Daniel, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure for me to be here with you this afternoon.
0: And where, where are you taking the call from?
1: I'm actually taking the call from the Caribbean. I'm on the very beautiful island of Antigua where we've been doing some work for some time on the environment. So uh, beautiful ocean, sandy beaches, lots of nature. I am totally in my element.
0: Sounds wonderful. I think a lot of people would want to be on a Caribbean island during lockdown as well. So, um, I feel lucky. (laughs) Yeah, I I probably would too if I were you. So today I'd I'd like to cover kind of three broad topics um, or overall themes, I suppose. Number one is is really how you help companies and governments do what they need to do as businesses and, and governments while also working with the environment. Um, number two is I'd love to hear what inspired you to to do this work in the first place, and and third, which is I think a big part of what you do on a day day to day basis is any advice that you can give uh, to us as listeners and and to us as individuals or you know just me as a person. What can we do to be more environmentally friendly in our daily lives? Um, before we jump into all of that, could you? Because I, I gave a big uh, kind of sweeping introduction to you. Um, But briefly, in your own words, what what exactly do you do?
1: So, what I do on a day-to-day basis is I work with governments, I work with companies, I work with communities, um, trying to help them understand their environment and incorporate the environment so they can find solutions that benefit nature, but also meet their goals. And their goals sometimes can be deciding a policy if it's government, it can be return on investment if it's a business. And for communities, it might be maintaining a community focus on what's happening around them. So, in essence, I do three main things: I bring science because we use science. Secondly, we focus on solutions, and thirdly, we are we make sure that nature and the environment is at the table.
0: Wow, that's really cool. I think, um, and I know that that's a theme of, of yours, which is kind of those three three things. Mm-hmm. ROI being one of them, which which you consistently talk about. How how did you actually? What was the moment when you realized that this is the way that you want to? Uh, because you you have a doctorate um, and you've been studying a lot. What was the moment when you realized actually academia isn't quite for me, and instead I want to take everything I'm learning and apply it this way?
1: Yeah, it was. It probably led up to it, but it was an interesting one. Particular moment, particularly. Which is I was so first. I was always interested in nature as a kid. I grew up by the ocean. Mm. I was really curious about nature, and I took that curiosity and turned it into a career in academia as a scientist. Scientists are curious, um, and I was teaching on the west coast of the U.S. and teaching about oceans and coastal forests and how we interact with these oceans and coastal forests, and teaching in a field called conservation biology, which is really the science of nature and how how humans apply that science. And during that period, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service decided to list a seabird as endangered. It's called the Marble Merlette, tiny little bird, beautiful, uh, spends 11 months at sea. And then for one month of the year, it flies up to 60 miles inland to nest in old growth forests. And so when the the agencies listed this bird as an endangered species, it wasn't just the ocean and ocean industries that were going to be affected but logging communities and forestry communities along the West coast. Hmm. And so I was teaching at that time when we were studying this bird and I thought, well, why don't we do some workshops in the communities about the science of this bird? Cause so little was known about it and how it got listed and what the situation is moving forward. So I put together these workshops with the regulatory agencies, a bunch of scientists, including myself, and we went to these different communities to hold these workshops. And at one of the communities, it was in Southern Oregon, quite a rural community. We were all there. We were giving talks. We were pres- giving presentations. I was moderating. And we had a break. And during that break, I went into the restroom, me and a bunch of other women, as happens in these situations, you know. So we were in there. And then these women who were from the local community came over to talk to me. And they said, wow, well, thanks for coming. We're really glad you're here. And I said, Oh, we're we're very happy to be here. We're happy to explain the science and what's going on. And they said, no, no, we're really happy you're here. And we went back and forth. And I said, no, really, we do want to come here and deliver the science. And they said, no, I don't think you understand. Um, We live in a small community. We are a logging-based community. All of our husbands have worked in forestry for all their years. And we've had economic downturns. And now we have this bird being listed. And we're very stressed out. We don't know what's going to happen. We've had two teenage suicides in our community in the last week. And we're seeing an increase in domestic violence. You coming down here gives us some idea of what's going on and gives us some sort of hope that we can do something. Wow. I was completely stunned. It really dawned on me then that the impact of our science, the impact we can have, we often don't know what it is. And that really got me thinking about how to... important our science is in the community and how to better communicate to to the different communities who don't understand science or necessarily nature or how to use it so when i went back after the break and i was still moderating a session i decided to deviate from script and started asking questions about well now that we know all this what can we do and the number of hands in the audience who went up the number of people who had been living in this community for generations and who had ideas, really good ideas, some of them, in order to help bring back this bird, was astonishing. And that, for me, was probably one of the denouement moments where I thought, you know, we've got a role to play with our scientific knowledge. We've got a role to play in terms of bringing people together and in working towards solutions. And after that, it was no looking back. You know, it really... It permeated everything I did from that day forward to think about how, how does what we do influence communities? How do we make things better through the science we have? And, and important to listen to people, too.
0: Yeah, that's so that's a, it.
1: That's how I got there. That's you know? a
0: yeah. fascinating story. And I, I think you're absolutely right. It, what didn't occur to me is when, uh, and, and you just described this, the moment that a bird, for instance, in, in this case, becomes uh, on the endangered list. Uh from my point of view, at least as someone who's not um, that involved or, or I suppose uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't really understand the implications of what that means I when, when you told that story, I was quite surprised to hear that all of a sudden uh, it affects how fishing the fishing industry works in a specific region and the logging industry so clearly you're absolutely right the science has far-reaching implications for the for people in certain industries of certain areas um, yes. Yeah, that, that's quite shocking because I, I guess, um, and perhaps what it sounds like to me is that as a scientist, you you hear, you, you do your study and then someone acts on it and you are like, okay, great, next sort of next yeah. study or I'm going to continue it. But actually there's much more exactly.
1: to it. That, yeah, and you get it, you choose whether, how far you want to go. But I, I know exactly. And I felt the same for a while when you hear that a species is listed as endangered, your first thought is, oh my gosh, this species is going to go extinct right. and we need to do everything we can to protect it from extinction, which is true. And then you start to think, well, where is the species found and what else lives in that area? Who else lives in that area? Hmm. And usually it's, there's a pretty strong human community engaged in that same place. So that's what we've got to look at both.
0: And speaking of um, human community living where um, where these animals are Um, a big part of what you do and and we were talking about this uh before we started recording is this idea of where humans and nature intersect Um, and i think that's a really interesting point of view because we are well first of all humans are nature and we're part of nature um but to a certain degree i think a lot of people think we're not part of nature um And also the way we treat nature is very different than the way the rest of nature treats nature. Um, So when you talk about where humans and nature intersect, what exactly does that mean from your point of view?
1: So from my point of view, it means basically, as you said, first, we are part of nature. So and everything we do, we do on nature, we do on the planet. So if we want to build a town, we want to build a house, we are building it on nature. And that's a landscape that's dynamic. It's one we've interacted with. It's one that provides us with services and value. Mm -hmm. So everything, that's my starting point is that we, that's where we interact. Um, We then tend to alter that landscape for our own benefit. And the degree to which we alter it can be positive or it can be negative. And so let's, let's take an example of both because I think it's, it's worth looking at. So Where we tend to come in is when that interaction gets very strong in one way or another or has a possibility to. So coronavirus is, I think, a very good example of the consequences of our negative interaction with nature. So for many years, uh, we've been cutting down forests. And what that effect is that it pushes humans and wildlife closer and closer together. It's sort of trying to imagine humans and wildlife living in a tiny apartment in New York. That's kind of what it comes to. Um, And that closeness uh, allows viruses and diseases to jump from these animals into humans. Now, half the time, it doesn't make any difference, but every now and then it does. And that's what's happened with SARS, with Ebola, and now with coronavirus-19. Deforestation, uh, loss of natural habitats has been forcing humans and animals together, and we're seeing these outbreaks. And they've been predicted for many years. The sad thing about coronavirus is that for scientists, this is not a surprise. Um, but were we prepared? Not, no. Uh, so the negative consequence of nature and human interacting is when we interact in that stage to the detriment of nature and to our own detriment. And that is one example on, on the negative side. Mm-hmm. Let's turn it to the positive side now. So we know, for instance, that a lot of the work that I do, that humans living along the coast, we're now at risk from storms, we're at risk from flooding, we're at risk from storm surge, sea level rise, and we're seeing a lot of those with the hurricanes that have gone up the coast recently. We know from signs that coral reefs or offshore reefs will reduce the force of a wave by up to 97%. That means the wave is broken offshore. When it comes ashore, it's less strong, it's less, uh, less tall, and it runs up f- less far on the shore, so you get less flooding. Coastal marshes will reduce flooding by, on average, about a third. And if you have a a sand dune, it basically acts as a barrier against incoming surge. So nature, where we intersect with nature in that area, nature offers us a lot of benefit. So let me give you an example of how how we were able to use this this intersection in our work. In one of my projects, um, we were contacted by an investor who had bought an entire beach, property along an entire beach. And he came down, he looked at us and he called us and he said, you know, I want to do a seawall because I'd like to have some privacy. And I think this beach is looking a little scuzzy and I'd like to, I think a a seawall would help. And so we talked with him and said, you know, a seawall is going to increase the speed of the water. It's going to take away your entire beach in front of that seawall. And then the sea is going to eat under that wall. And then you're going to have to shore up the wall and you're going to have to shore up the beach. And you won't have much beach, and in fact, the community won't have a beach either. So he said, "What would you do?" And we said, "Well, what I would advise you do is restore your dunes, build your dunes up to about twelve feet, vegetate them with natural vegetation. You will have all the privacy you want because that vegetation gets really thick, and you will that dune will act as your insurance policy. When the beach disappears in storms, the sand from the dune will go down on the beach, and then as things get calmer." the dune will build up. So you'll have this ebb and flow of sand. And to give him his credit, he said, let's do it. So we did. We restored the entire beach, uh, the entire dune system. I think we had 40,000 plants that we planted. Wow. Um, and that dune withstood four major hurricanes. It got hit by Hurricane Irma. It took a beating, but it held the line and it protected the property. So when the insurance a guy came down, he said to him, if you had not restored that dune, your entire property would have been underwater and gone. So, that to me is a really good example of working with nature. And we've talked about return on investment. To do that entire restoration cost somewhere between 200 and 220,000 US dollars. Wow. The cost of the wall was uh, half a million US dollars. So, he saved, well, no, actually, he saved half a million. The cost of the wall was going to be about 700,000. So, he the saved half about half, half a million he didn't have any upkeep because nature is great nature just keeps growing by itself you know it's, uh, it, it's it keeps clever. doing the work for you yeah so in the end his his return on investment financially was really high but in terms of sustaining the property it was amazing so that's that's an example of a very positive interaction with nature and that's the way we'd like to have more of them happening
0: yeah that's amazing so the this yeah. property had or, or the the beach where the property was built it used to have dunes
1: Yes, it had dunes and, and when he bought it, really because so many people were using the dune system and climbing on the dunes and, mm-hmm. you know, it was a, a nice place to hang out, the dunes had gotten flattened. So he didn't have the same level of protection and we just reshaped, took the sand and reshaped it and recreated the dunes. Yeah, exactly.
0: Wow, that's such a cool way to do it. I know that um, another way to, um, well, like depending on, of course, where you are, but man- mangrove trees are a huge uh, protective yeah. barrier um, for any sort of surges and storms, as well as uh, they are a massive ecosystem for fish and shrimp, um, like
1: Yes, that. they are they're amazing. we're We're doing actually a lot of work with mangroves right now. It's just um, again, same thing, looking at how to restore them, which species do you use, and it's better if you have a good mix of species. But you're exactly right. They are great habitat for fish. A lot of the commercial fish that people uh, catch start off their life in mangroves. They attenuate storms and then they act as filters as well. So mm-hmm. for sediments and pollutions coming in, they can be a good trap for that. So they're, yeah, they're amazing mangroves.
0: That's- and
1: very beautiful to kayak through if you ever get a chance as well. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I may have been, I may have done something like that in Kauai. Um, I think there is, I may be wrong, but I think there is uh, like the Blue Grotto, I believe it's called. Uh, uh-huh. It's this river that goes kind of into the middle of the island and the, it's full of trees. It must be mangrove trees that are...
1: I'm sure there's mangroves in there. Yeah. yeah
0: it's absolutely stunning. Um, and there's birds everywhere and it's it's really loud, just full of animals. Yes,
1: yeah, that sounds other. like mangroves yeah yeah,
0: yeah. and i mean stunning.
1: close to home for most people the florida keys you've got them as well you know so many places to go yeah, yeah.
0: so this idea of um living in a small new york style apartment with nate with wildlife and nature uh it sounds like what would be a healthier relationship is to give nature a bit of space um so ha- i guess well i'm i'm Based on the example that you you mentioned, would that be an example of giving nature space or how um, how how do we give nature space or or I suppose another way to ask that is how do we avoid encroaching on nature?
1: yeah, I, I think the example I gave you is is one. The other is to to really start to understand your ecosystem and whether we're building back after coronavirus with more green infrastructure is to create areas where nature can, can literally be and provide us with services. So, for, you know, you talked about New York and cities. What we're seeing more in cities now is that engineers are thinking, well, we need to th- start working with nature. It's a very positive step forward. So bioswales, the use of wetlands to, uh, to stop flooding, to reduce pollution. And you can do those in ways to create parks for people. So mm-hmm. now people have somewhere to go it's very beautiful and it's very beautiful and that beauty also has functionality. And so when we start to design for ourselves and we think about where we want to live, just taking the time and creating that space, it actually pays dividends. It's not wasted space. It gives something back to you. So that's, uh, we just have to make space for nature.
0: I think it's an important thing. And I mean, I'm, I'll kind of lead you here. Um, would you say that, you know, for someone I'm just thinking about, for, for me, for instance, I have, I live in London, big city, not that much space. Um, I have, I'm very lucky. I have a little patio, um, which I know is based on a lot of my friends. That's quite a big, um, that's quite a, um,
1: you're lucky. Exactly. You're lucky. Yeah, I'm very yes. lucky indeed. Yeah.
0: Um, so is, can I create space for nature on my patio?
1: Yes, you can. I mean, you can, you can create, well, you can plant. I assume you've got some room for planters. You can plant. You can you can figure out which plants attract birds, so birds or butterflies. We were talking earlier about butterfly counts. There is a species called Buddleia that's very common in England. It's also known as a butterfly plant. Hmm. You can provide. You can put plants on your patio that attract and support nat- nature. The nature you find in London. You know, London definitely has butterflies. It has a lot of bird life. It has insect life. I don't know how you feel about insects, but insects are pretty good. Insects Um, are important. Yes, yeah. And and depending on how much space you have, you can you can start to grow some of your own food. And that and you would be surprised at just doing how much doing that encourages nature, encourages other people to do it as well. Mm -hmm. So definitely you have a very big role to play.
0: Uh, it's. I think that's that's really important, and that's something that um, I like to always ask um, towards the end. Is really what can people do? And it's important to know that you know. It sounds like what you're saying is starting small, uh, or if small is all you can do, that's already more than enough. Yeah. I, I remember one of the very very first episodes I ha- I spoke with um, on this podcast was with a an urban beekeeper. She she lives in London, um, and I asked her, you know, what's the best way that people can help to encourage. Mm-hmm. The bees to come back because obviously that's a big thing. And she said, Yes, a lot of people think that they need to start a beehive and keep bees to get more bees. And she said, Actually, that's that is helpful, but what's even more helpful is to plant trees or flowers that encourage bees exactly. to have a space to go because having millions and millions and millions of bees but no flowers isn't going to be helpful. Um, so it's actually bringing the, the planting, nature
1: back. yeah, yeah. And I think it comes back to. You know, there was a a time when everybody had on their their car, the bumper sticker was think globally, act locally. Yeah. And that is so true because we do need to think globally. We need to think about what's happening to our planet. We need to make sure that people are secure and nature is secure. But acting locally is what we can do and do really well. And you brought up an important point that I think sometimes gets overlooked is that you can make a difference. And often I hear people saying, well, what can I do because you know, the problems are so great. There's climate change, there's forest fires. And all of that is true. But you actually, as an individual, can make a huge difference. And the way to do it is to look in your own community and see what's needed. And then to think about what is it that resonates with you? You know, for you, it might be growing plants on your patio. For me, it's ecosystems. For some people, it's recycling. For others, it would be renewable energy and figure out a way that you can engage in that, whether something you do at home or you join an NGO and become active. And once you start doing it, then you have to start telling people because we all respond from peer-to-peer pressure. And if you tell me, hey, Deborah, I've got buddlias and I've got bee-friendly plants in my patio. Well, I will think about putting them on my patio too. And it all adds up for those millions of bees in London. Now they all have somewhere to go. And we sometimes overlook that because it doesn't seem like a huge, big thing if you're doing a major project. But as we all go out and start doing it, it changes how we think and it changes the way our communities think. And it does make a difference. It most certainly makes a difference.
0: Absolutely. Positive peer pressure. It's good. Yes,
1: yeah. It's a good thing. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, a- another word that, that you use um, is the word resilient. I've seen that come up um, in uh, my research and, and he- hearing your talks and, and reading mm-hmm. some of your work, what does the word resilient mean to you?
1: So to me, resilient means the process of adapting and changing and enduring. So on a, I look at it in two ways. So on a personal and human level, we all get challenged by something. Um, it, coronavirus is challenging us all right now. And it is, to be resilient, it's not, it's not a thing. We sometimes talk about it as though it's a feature or a property or it's a thing you have. Um, it's not, it is the process you go through. Mm. It's learning how to deal with these challenges. It's learning how to adapt. And it's coming through at the other side, changed, definitely, but still yourself, still recognizable. And I've taken that lesson from nature because all ecosystems get challenged by something um coral reefs get hit by hurricanes forests get hit by fires we're seeing an awful lot of those right now tragically on the west coast and these events do i mean the reefs take a beating in a hurricane the forests take a beating in the fires and over time they start to rebound and come back so that ultimately the forest if left alone will replace itself the reef will replace itself it won't be exactly the same, but it is still a reef, it is still a forest, and still recognisable. And that, in ecological terms, is known as resilience, rebound, rebound with some changes. And for me, that's it. It is the process we go through, and we're all going. We're all going through a resilience process right now.
0: Absolutely, yeah. With going to these fires because they're they're quite shocking. And actually, I'm uh, I'm from. California I've lived both in Los Angeles and uh, the Bay Area near San Francisco and there's I'm oh, getting wow. some pretty scary looking photos from my family um you know of these incredibly dark orange brown skies yeah. it just looks like the apocalypse um you know sitting here far away um in the UK it's kind of uh you know I think what well, what can I do um what, I mean, with your understanding and knowledge of how everything works, um, what can I do? Is there anything I can do?
1: For the forest fires in California directly? Yeah. Probably nothing at the moment, but I, I really hope your family are safe and, and all your friends are safe because it is very scary. Um, on, a, on a larger level of, of forest fires, we're looking at a changing climate. We're expecting more forest fires. We're expecting... Uh, in, in California, in that region, we're expecting different kinds of storms and flooding. And Where you are in the UK, what you can do is to help your governments, local governments, do policies and, and building structures that are better adapted to these changes that are coming.
0: Speaking of so resilience.
1: In, yes. And so on the West Coast, we need to start thinking about what kinds of fires we expect. What will drive these fires? Are they stronger winds? Are there hotter climates, which we're seeing? And how are we going to manage our, our landscapes? It's not just forests, but the whole landscapes, chaparral, in order that fire, which is a natural process, goes through, but it doesn't take out the entire, our entire communities, hmm. which is what we're seeing in some areas now. It's very, very tragic.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, it, it does come back to this idea of um, think globally, act locally
1: it does doesn't it yeah
0: yeah going back to um and thank you very much by the way um so far it seems like my family and and friends are safe and hopefully anyone who is affected by this it's it's the same um but yeah it's a, it is a very difficult situation um to switch topics a little bit um thank you. Going back to the uh the clients that that you work with because uh i've you know at the beginning I, I I mentioned that you you work with private companies as well as governments and communities. Can you uh talk a little bit about who are your clients that you that you work with You mentioned um someone who has uh, a beachfront property um who who are some of the other um, what are some of the other opportunities you get to work?
1: Yes, yeah, so, so, so they are varied. Um, we, work, we work with governments, and governments are looking at environmental policy. Mm-hmm. We work with investors, and investors are looking at, um, they want to invest. Maybe they want to invest in a company, a renewable energy company, or maybe they want to invest in a development that's taking place, and they want to know what are the environmental risks and what are the kind of solutions. And generally, the types of investors that we work with have an environmental sense going in. Um, so for them, taking care of the environment is important, mm-hmm. and they trust us to tell them, look, this is the fragility of the environment, or this is the strength of the environment. This is what you have to take into account. And then sometimes we work with other businesses that are, they're dealing with the environment because sometimes they have to. Um, they've got a regulatory issue. They did something. They've got to fix it. They're afraid of doing something. They want to know how to do it right, and they come with probably a different priority. So for some of these businesses, um, profit is, is the driving force, return on investment is the driving force. And I say this because not everybody shares our view on the environment. And so with that sector of people, we look at it as saying, this is how they're coming to us. Our goal is that by the time they leave us, that they will see that their, na- their relationship with nature and the environment isn't adversarial. Hmm. and that there are opportunities to do something better. And that's our goal with them. But we work across a diversity of sectors and a diversity of interests. I think the most important part for us is that we bring our integrity to the table and we expect it on the other side.
0: Yep. I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you mentioned companies that clearly made a mistake and need to fix it. Uh, first thing that comes to mind is the uh, the oil spill that happened off the coast of Mauritius. Yeah is that something that you would be called in to advise on how you can clean it up and basically we've, take... we've
1: been called not not on that particular one but we've been called in on other projects uh usually natural resource projects but that that is a, a huge tragedy and you know it's it's going to take a, a long time to fix these are these are catastrophes yeah. and that's the only word for it more more often these are the issues are not so huge and so massive that companies are doing. They tend to be more fixable, and they require a change in attitude. I see. The what happened off the coast of Mauritius, as you know, um, BP oil spill is another. That these are catastrophes that generally have a, a. They they didn't just happen because of one thing. There's usually a cascade of mistakes or a cascade of decisions that happens that results in something that is so catastrophic, and will take a very very long time to fix. Hmm. And I think for these kind of disasters, because they will happen again, we almost need like a global a global task force of scientists and almost like a war room that when this happens, everybody goes in and goes, okay, we've had a disaster happen. What do we know about it? What don't we know? And what, how do we get the information quickly? And how are we going to respond? And we don't have one of those really in place for these kind of events, but it would be very good. In an ideal world, we should start doing it.
0: I think that's a great idea. Absolutely. What What are the kind of things that you're testifying in front of the U.S. Congress or advocating at the U- UN? Um, what are the the things that you're you're telling our um, you know our, our world leaders?
1: Well, it, for me, it comes back to science and environment always. So, one of the main things for me is trying to help our world leaders understand what science is. And the fact that science needs to be a foundation of decision making. Mm. You know, politicians um, will never make a decision only on science, as we know. But if we can provide scientific information and we can provide the knowledge we have and the certainty we have around that knowledge, what it does is it improves decision making. So it allows politicians and other people to make better decisions through science. The other thing that's really important is that. Science, is, um, science is, a, is a journey. It's not the destination. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we often hear in, as a criticism of science is, well, you keep changing your answers. And we've heard that a lot in coronavirus. Now for scientists, the point is, yes, that's exactly what science does. You know, at one point we thought that the sun went around the earth. Now we know the earth goes around the sun and that's, that's a out there example, but What we're seeing in coronavirus and climate change is the same, is that the rate of of advancement of science is so vast and so fast that we can come out with better answers and in a very short time frame. We're not waiting hundreds of years, which is what it was like before. And so it's really important that politicians and scientists understand that you want your scientists to continually refine their data. You want them to continually bring you new information. And then the other part is how do you how do you take that information and incorporate it into policy? so I advocate for the science I advocate for the use of science and sometimes in very specific projects very specific areas, often to do with climate change
0: yeah I think that makes sense you, you said that politicians don't always use science for um, uh, you know, to make decisions, and it just mm-hmm. reminded me of one of the things you you mentioned at the very beginning about a bird being listed as an endangered uh, species and the knock on effect that a uh, that a that a decision like that, which mm-hmm. is based on science, has. Um, yeah. I, I can I can I suppose I can appreciate why being a politician can be it can be very challenging to only focus on science because if you. Uh, just to see it from the other side. If you're um if you're making decisions only based on on science, all of a sudden you might be wiping out thousands or hundreds of thousands of people's livelihood. And that needs to be you can't just say, well, yeah. it's for the environment. So kind of like
1: And they vote, right? <laughs> and they vote. <laughs> yes. That's a big yeah. part that we
0: can't forget. But you
1: know. but but that that comes back to I think the divide and dichotomy that we've we've grown to accept, which is for a politician is listening to you know, here's a scientist who comes in and provides this information. This bird is going extinct. Uh, Our fish are going extinct. We need to do something. We need to stop fishing. We need to stop logging. And the politician is thinking, this may be true, but my constituents are fishermen, are forestry people. And that puts them in a divide that go one way or the other. Nature of people, nature of people. I don't think, I think that's a false dichotomy. Hmm. And I think as long as we present it that way, Somebody's going to make a decision on one side or the other, and the other side's going to lose. Imagine a situation where you do go in and you say, Look, we have an issue. Our fish are are declining, our seabirds are declining. We've got to do something. So, we have to come up with a solution that will continue to sustain the economies of our communities while not driving these species extinct. That's the actual problem we need to solve. So, let's figure out how do we solve that? Are there areas that we set aside? Are there ways that we change our fishing practices, but still make sure that fishermen are getting the same income? And interestingly, if, when you reach a situation where the resource has dwindled to a point where we're having to listen to those endangered, nobody is making the money they did from that resource. And yeah, so the yeah. opportunity is there to look at things differently. And if we come at it from that perspective, people will get around the table because it's in everybody's interest economically and from a nature perspective. And that's, that's how we like to try and present things. But I, I think it really can get the two sides or three sides, often there's 10 sides at the table, to start thinking about solutions rather than either I win and you lose, or you know, which is how we have approached these things in the past.
0: I think that's really important. Something that when I first started this podcast and really started approaching these challenges, which I've, the more I, I speak to people, the more complicated and complex I realize these issues and questions are. But the one thing that I've consistently seen, and and you're, you're saying it now as well, is that if we can somehow prove that there is financial incentive around working with nature, and and you always, you've said more than once that nature provides us with services, which makes sense. We're part of nature. So of course it provides yeah. us with services and we're part of that. Um if we can prove that there's a financial, you know, ROI, or if it's financially uh, beneficial to us, then um, it becomes easy, much easier, I would say, to make those decisions. And again, it goes back to that first uh, client that we talked about with the the seawall. That was mm-hmm. um, not a good financial decision. It cost five hundred thousand dollars more than the um, the alternative. Plus, it wasn't natural. So by going yeah. through the natural route. Um, First of all, they ended up saving a lot of money. They don't need to restore the wall after however many years. And now you're working with nature. Um, And it reminds me of like regenerative farming as well or permaculture. After a while, the farm just does it by itself and you only need two or three people to run a huge operation because rather than needing to spray on timing and, you know, have a whole schedule involved with uh, fertilizers and sprays and weeding, you just sort of let nature do its thing and it takes care of itself.
1: It does. That's the beauty of it, you know? Yeah.
0: yeah, and the, the, yeah. the amount of money you end up making from a, from the same, you know, 100 acres of farmland ends up being substantially more because you're not, um, the profit is much higher. You're, you're not buying any fertilizers. You're not buying any mm-hmm. uh, sides, you know, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, et cetera. And um, yeah, you, you just yeah. make money and it's easier. And it is,
1: isn't <laughs> it? Yeah, and less <laughs> stressful. Yep. Exactly. Yeah,
0: Exactly, because nature does the work for you, just like you were saying earlier. Um We've talked a little bit about some um, some catastrophes and the challenges as well, but I know that you're you're very optimistic about the environment and nature in general, and that's something we talked mm-hmm. about before recording. What exactly are you optimistic about?
1: Oh, I and think and why
0: as well, while, I, while we're on yeah.
1: the topic. I, I think I'm naturally optimistic, um, and but I'm optimistic today because I am seeing that people want to make a difference and are making a difference. I see that scientists are advancing science and engaging more with the community to restore reefs, to to pay attention to what's happening to our, our landscapes, to our rivers, and that we're, that we're actually starting to do it. And I think the generations coming up are very thoughtful about the environment. They really want to see it, see it improve. And that in turn is driving how businesses and corporations think, because they're paying attention to who's coming up and and what what people are asking them. So I feel really optimistic about that. Um, I think the other two is coronavirus, despite how awful the situation is, is a really good example. We've gone from a virus that we didn't even know how it worked or didn't even know its RNA to 10 months later, seriously looking at the potential of, of a vaccine for a, we've never done one for a coronavirus which is extraordinary for science but beyond that the story that isn't really being told is how many scientists are working together hmm. sharing data sharing results before they even publish them so that everybody can move forward and, and really help people and help the planet to me i think that's fantastic um so i think too that we get a choice as to how we want to leave the world and we want to leave the world and if you want to leave the world in a better place you're going to wake up happy because you have a job to do every day
0: absolutely yeah you know? I think there's there's a lot to be said about focusing on the things that are important to you and and um yeah pursuing those uh who's a question i that I always find interesting and fun is um who is uh is a who's a sustainability champion or someone who works in sustainability that you look up to so
1: um Sylvia Earle is an ocean scientist explorer who before anybody was really talking about sustaining the oceans, keeping the oceans going and, and talking about the importance of curiosity, was doing this like before anybody else did. Mm. And she's also held the record of being the woman who went to the deepest in a gym suit, deepest in the ocean. She is now in her eighties, I believe, and she is out there as an advocate an advocate for sustainable fisheries, an advocate for protecting our, our, our ocean wildernesses. I look up to her because, you know, she's doing it. She's been doing it for a long time and she'll be doing it until the end, you know. That's amazing. And that's inspiring.
0: Yeah, I think it's important to have people like that who really motivate you and inspire you. And um, you think, you know, what would they do in this situation? Yeah. It pushes you forward. So um going back to something we were talking about earlier, just as we're wrapping up here, um, you mentioned that, you know, we all can have a part to play in talking about making a little space for nature on on a patio. What what advice would you give to people who want to be environmentally friendly at home? And I'm thinking a lot about the people who live in cities, especially, you know, they're Mm -hmm. not very much space. Again, um, I'm very fortunate that I have a little space on my patio, but Many people don't. Um, so what can people do to to think globally and uh, act locally while living yeah. in a small space?
1: So I think for people in cities, uh, obviously, you're not out in a large nature. I think a lot of the things that we're looking at people to do today, I know recycling is, sounds very small, but it is key. It's a major thing that we can do to protect mm-hmm. our planet. Thinking about how we use energy. Um, thinking about how we can reduce our energy footprint. The stuff we buy in the store, where does it come from? How is it sourced? And is there a way that we can support locally sourced, locally sourced agriculture, locally sourced products? All of those start to create communities that are more energy efficient, that are better for the environment, and that actually create a community as well. And these are, they sound very simple. But you'd be surprised how often we don't do them. And when we start to do them, the the benefits are huge. It's a bit like the, the story about, you told me about the bees. Plant flowers, bees do really well, do these simple things and our planet does better and our communities do better.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's it's the key. Um it's the little things. And um
1: yeah, always is, isn't it? Yeah,
0: exactly. And taking the time I think like you said to really understand where your products come from and it's not just food. Um I've, I've been reading yeah. quite a bit about the um uh, about fast fashion and the challenges that are associated yeah. with production mm-hmm. of clothing. And I saw somewhere um someone advocating for clothes to have like a um a label that says first of all, what's in it. And second of all, where it comes from, you know, almost having yeah. like a nutrition, nutrition info for your clothing, which I think is a really interesting idea. And um, you know, whether or not that's something that's done, it's something that I think people and something that I probably will start researching now is before I, before I shop is just to get an idea. You know, if I need a new shirt, for instance, maybe think about, just put in a couple extra minutes, think about where, yeah. where to buy it from and, and invest a little bit more into something that's quality made and, local and has a smaller environmental footprint.
1: Yeah, environmental and social. I, th- there's a real movement starting on around fashion, which I think mm-hmm. is, is positive for what fashion does to the environment, how it uses water, and how communities benefit or don't. Yeah, it's, it's one to watch. It's, it's very encouraging to see how people are thinking about it.
0: Absolutely, yeah, the, there is this uh, slow fashion movement um, and this idea of buying right. secondhand, yeah, yeah. there is a lot of and a lot of incredible companies finding some really interesting solutions for um for you know basically the challenges of of fashion and all the waste and
1: like yeah. said,
0: water usage around it. Um, well, Deborah, this has been unbelievably interesting. It's so amazing to hear the work that you're doing and and the um, the approach that you take when speaking with companies, people governments, organizations, et cetera. For, for anyone who's interested in learning more about the work that you do, if they want to dig in a little further, where can people go to actually learn about, uh, about you and, uh, and your company and maybe some of your, um, read or listen to some of your uh, ideas?
1: So we have a website, um, which is my name, deborabrasnan.com, all one word. Uh, we're on Facebook, um, social media. Uh, you can find us there. Or just email. That's often the easiest. We do respond, and the easiest email is info i n f o at deborabrashland dot com.
0: Excellent. And yeah, uh, get in touch. And then also, you have um, a couple of TED talks, or one TED talk in specific. Yes,
1: I do. Yes, that and that's on. Um, that you can find that on YouTube. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah.
0: Great. Well, Deborah, again, thank you so much for your time. Really great to speak with you and to hear about the work that you're doing.
1: Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you for inviting me to speak with you. I enjoyed it very, very much.
0: Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating. And also, please subscribe, whether on your podcast app or on YouTube. And that way you can be the first to know about new episodes. Thank you very much and talk to you soon.